next Jen Murdoch. Fox News viewers, stay tuned to see where the family's media dynasty goes from here. Poland's government goes after a film director for exposing the country's hostile treatment of refugees. Plus, TikTok and the Mafia. Elements of the Italian underworld are surfacing online. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we provide explanatory journalism about journalism. If you're preparing for your own succession, putting the final touches on a legacy, you start by appointing an heir. And you do that when you're still in a position, a state, to control what comes next. That's what Rupert Murdoch did last week, handing the reins to his global media empire to his eldest son, Lachlan. But in this real-life story of succession, there may be some twists in the tale, complications to come. When Murdoch, who's 92, does eventually die, three of Lachlan's siblings might have something to say about who ends up in charge of the family firm, News Corp, and by extension, Fox News. They have a different brand of politics, perhaps a different vision for the future of the Murdoch empire. Lachlan takes over News Corp with plenty on his plate, an upcoming U.S. election and a major lawsuit over Fox's coverage of the last election. Consider it an extended audition for the job of running one of the biggest, most influential and, according to its critics, most dangerous news organizations on the planet. The speculation began decades ago. When will Rupert Murdoch hand over his global media empire and to whom? Who will end up controlling Fox News and The Wall Street Journal in the US? Talk TV, The Times and The Sun in the UK, Sky News Australia and seven of the 12 national daily papers there. Hundreds of news outlets across three continents, publishing companies and streaming services. For now, Murdoch has anointed his eldest son, Lachlan, choosing him over James and the two sisters, Elizabeth and Prudence. Call it a preemptive strike. Rupert Murdoch is doing what he can, while he still can, to control the future of the company he created. The true succession and more fascinating story unfortunately begins at a death. When Rupert Murdoch passes, that's when really we'll start to see massive changes. The family trust splits four ways. So Lachlan, sure, while he's running the company now, when it comes to the decision making after his father passes, that'll be split. And so that's where the hard conversations, the tough negotiating, the allyship between the siblings will really start to take hold. Rupert is in fine health. His mother lived uh, until 103, he is 92, so it might not happen for quite some time yet. And I did report in my book that there was an intention among the siblings uh, on Rupert's passing uh, to reassert control of the Murdoch family businesses in a way that promotes and enhances democracies around the world rather than undermines them. Lachlan is to the right of his siblings politically and the divide between them has deepened. Starting in November, Murdoch will hold the honorary title of Chairman Emeritus where his... And you could also see this as a sideways move into being an emeritus within the company, Rupert whispering into the ear of Lachlan and still playing a very important role. It's been a rocky couple of years for uh, Murdoch's companies, some expensive settlements, some difficult political relationships. So 
you could speculate that now is as good a time as any to make that move. The Murdoch sons have always been considered the heirs apparent to the empire. For a time, the biggest thing that Lachlan had going for him, apart from sharing his father's conservative politics, was what he didn't do. He left News Corp in 2005, focused on Australia, and made some investments of his own there, outside of the mainstream media. So Lachlan wasn't around five years later when the phone hacking scandal broke in the UK. James had to carry the can on that, along with Rupert at the judicial inquiry that followed. This is the most humble day of my life. The prodigal son returned in 2014 when Lachlan, untouched by the stigma around the family business in the UK, took on a senior position at News Corp and then Fox News in the US. The 2020 presidential election was not fair. No honest person would claim that it was fair. But Lachlan was on the inside for a journalistic scandal far worse than phone hacking. Fox's merchandising of Donald Trump's stolen election claims, which the network and the Murdochs knew to be lies, but broadcast anyway. The lawsuits that followed have cost Fox almost $800 million and counting. Yet none of that has damaged Lachlan the way phone hacking did James, at least not in the eyes of his father. Lachlan was, in a way, the last man standing. Uh, so James, fairly or unfairly, was tarnished by the phone hacking scandal. He was running uh, News International, although he was never responsible for uh, the newspapers when they were doing the actual phone hacking. But he was responsible for the company's response to uh, the phone hacking scandal, and he was tarnished by it. And so Lachlan was the only one left. Lachlan Murdoch's uh, role at uh, Fox News. It, it's quite damning to see that even as the network knew uh, that Donald Trump had lost the 2020 election, that his uh, claims of election fraud uh, were false, those claims were nonetheless being peddled uh, on a constant basis on Fox News. They were so concerned that they could lose their audience to more extreme rivals uh, that they were willing to put the very fabric of American democracy in jeopardy. Uh, and we saw the results uh, of that strategy on January uh, 6th uh, of 2021. Thousands storming the Capitol after a rally with President Trump, during which he urged them to march on the Capitol. The question now becomes what, if anything, changes at News Corp now that Lachlan Murdoch has been chosen by his father to call the shots. Is the strategy to prioritize ratings and corporate profits over journalistic accuracy and ethics here to stay? Past behavior would suggest Lachlan is not one for turning, but can he afford not to change? Fox settled the Dominion Voting System's lawsuit out of court, but a second defamation case launched by another voting machine company, Smartmatic, is still to be adjudicated. And the ask is $2.7 billion. That is the conundrum. Does Fox alter its journalism to limit future legal damages? Because doing so would risk alienating its audience and driving down its own ratings. Lachlan Murdoch's statements suggest that he does not care if his network is uh, putting a U.S. democracy in jeopardy. What's most significant is uh, what Fox News became in the years in which 
uh, he was uh, running it uh, beginning in, in 2018 or so, a propaganda outlet for Donald Trump's White House, promoting white nationalist conspiracy theories, demagoguery on a level that even for Fox News was unusual. Lachlan might say that, uh, but they have actually, behind the scenes, been very careful about that, how they cover those baseless stolen election claims ever since the Dominion case. And you won't see Trump live on Fox News. All the interviews that they've done have been pre-taped. You have seen, uh, within days of the Dominion settlement, uh, the benching of uh, their most popular um, primetime anchor, Tucker Carlson. He's clearly wanting to make moves that will make his mark. The day after Rupert Murdoch's resignation, he appointed two board members, one of which was the former Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott, who is a climate crisis denier. Lachlan Murdoch is not only making his mark, but also maintaining his father's legacy when it comes to that type of uh, viewpoint in the world. But instead... What Rupert Murdoch's retirement announcement provided was a sneak preview of how his obituary will read. A story of wealth amassed, influence wielded, damage done. Not that Murdoch will care about what his critics on the outside are saying about his legacy. There are all kinds of news sources all around the world saying nice things about him, his own. We are living in the world that Rupert Murdoch made, creating a global media empire on three continents uh, based on the understanding that he could sell right-wing grievance and anger and misinformation and amass astonishing uh, wealth and power. One part that has continued to be a part of his legacy is uh, denying the climate crisis that we're in, promoting lies and, and skeptics and falsehoods about climate change. Even though none could provide any evidence to that. Promoting the election lies here in the U.S. and promoting Donald Trump, hacking into the phones of celebrities and crime victims and others. So many examples that have tarnished his reputation and been controversial. I was particularly struck by Rupert Murdoch's uh, so-called resignation statement where he railed against the power of elites. It takes such an enormous amount of chutzpah to say that when you have the wealth and the privilege of anyone in the Murdoch family. Too many politicians continue to kowtow to Rupert Murdoch. No one non-elected person should wield that kind of influence. For me, the real question is not so much about what will happen in the real life succession, but more about why we allow such large media conglomerates and empires to exist. Turning to Poland now, where the country's ruling Law and Justice Party has launched a campaign targeting a director whose new film focuses on the treatment of refugees at Poland's borders. Minakshi Ravi is here with the details. Richard, The Green Border is the new drama from director Agnieszka Holland. Help! 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 help. It's a fictional telling of real events, which follows a group of Syrian and Afghan refugees on a treacherous journey to the swampy forests along Poland's border with Belarus. Once they arrive at the border, they receive a hostile response from Polish officials who refuse to let them in. 
The film has put a target on its director's back. Holland has been attacked by a range of leaders at the top of government, all of them effectively calling her a traitor. Pani Holland śmie nie tylko przedstawiać fatalny obraz Polski Polaków, bezcześcić polski mundur, ale zakłamywać też historię. Poland is in the middle of a tight and divisive parliamentary election campaign in which parties across the spectrum have indulged in anti-migrant rhetoric. A key part of the ruling Law and Justice Party's pitch to win an unprecedented third term in office is a promise to keep Poland safe from so-called external threats, a position in stark contrast with the welcome given to refugees from Ukraine. The outrage generated about Holland and her film dovetail neatly with that messaging. This week, we also saw Law and Justice member of the European Parliament, Dominic Tarshinsky, hawking the same anti-immigration rhetoric to right-wing audiences abroad, in the UK and the US. What we're saying is send them back. OK. Simple as that. Back in Poland, the election is two weeks away, and it's not just the demonization of refugees, but also the ruling party's dominance of the news media that is likely to be a major factor in the result. Thanks, Mila. To Italy now, where the digital revolution has penetrated the depths of the underworld. Some mafia groups known for secrecy and keeping a low profile are now operating in plain sight on TikTok. The platform has become the go-to form of communication for younger generations of different Italian mafia groups, from the Endrangheta in Calabria to the Camorra in Naples. They might be on TikTok to recruit new members, or they're just putting a more polished brand out there, reminding citizens of their ever-presence. With specific hashtags and emojis, it's a subtle yet effective way to exercise soft power. Among the Italian TikTokers following those accounts, the country's anti-mafia directorate, investigators in search of evidence. The listening posts Flo Phillips now from Rome on the mafia's new online stomping ground. For justice, we must go to Don Corleone. It's August 1972, and the first installment of Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather trilogy is released in the United States. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. It's the cult movie that spearheaded an entire gangster genre, bringing the infamous Italian mafia, albeit a romanticized representation of it, to the big screen. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Since then, the Mafia, its chapters and characters, have been depicted in hundreds of movies and TV series. From Goodfellas to Gamora. But today, 50 years since The Godfather's first screening, there's a new, more honest portrayal of the Mafia on a much smaller screen with a different director. Today, with the advent of TikTok and social media, the Mafia can tell its own story, adapting those filmic representations to better reflect their own lifestyles. They show us where they live, how they live, the real conditions of their world. TikTok plays an important role because by its very nature, it's a media platform that creates protagonists. Essentially, it is governed by the principle, brand yourself. And that branding or rebranding is key to the Mafia's identity. Honed over decades, brand Mafia has its roots in the 19th century Sicilian countryside, 
an armed wing of feudal nobility with the sole purpose of quashing claims from aggrieved peasants. Since then, the Sicilian Mafia, also known as Cosa Nostra, together with the Calabrian Andrangheta, the Neapolitan Camorra and the Puglian Sacra Corona Unita has become entrenched in Italy's political and cultural consciousness. While each branch is unique, when it comes to branding themselves on TikTok, this new propaganda push has one main message, money. What we see in these videos is wealth. For example, we find videos of someone like Christian Esposito, the son of a Camorra boss from Naples' west side. We see him with his friends opening champagne bottles and dancing. In another video, we see the son of an imprisoned Camorra boss, Decenzo Marino. He's also showing off his wealth. He appears very well-dressed, elegant, but viewers know this isn't some Burberry model. He's the boss's son, or is there sometimes referred to a baby boss? So they know that the Marino clan is still out there and has money. Over the past few decades, arrests of some big mafia names have made headlines in Italy and beyond. But the TikTok videos tell a different story. They edit out the crimes committed, the violence of the underworld. Instead, baby bosses brag about their latest tattoo, fancy watch, expensive car, all set to a local beat. It's the recurring use of symbols and hashtags that give away an affiliation with organized crime. You find emojis that express feelings. The lion is used to suggest strength and power. The exploding bomb can represent military might, but also a threat. Then there are chains that relate to the fact that many of the mafia consider themselves to be imprisoned, living under a kind of house arrest. Or the syringe, with a single drop of blood, reinterpreted by the mafia, to symbolize a blood pact brotherhood. It's like a virtual staking out of their territory. This somewhat contrasts the way in which the organization used to live. Until a few years ago, the Ndrangheta, for example, compared to the Camorra, always kept a low profile. It was absolutely forbidden to exhibit wealth. Bosses on the run spend years and years of their lives in conditions of extreme discomfort, living in caves, in tunnels. This is no longer considered an acceptable way of life. Deliberately clandestine to brazenly overt, the Mafia's presence on TikTok is a stark departure from its original media modus operandi. And it's representative of a wider social evolution for one of the most powerful criminal networks in the world, a shift from hard to soft power. Violence was always part of the Mafia narrative. Murder, extortion, various forms of petty crime. It was the media and the message. Today, 200 years on, the modern-day equivalent of this tradition is on social media, the Mafia responding to the impact of the digital world. These videos are about parading their wealth, and not just in front of their own local community, but also in front of the authorities. These videos show both their financial as well as their military power, but in less risky ways. So before, a clan that was under attack from another Camorra clan might show its strength with so-called stese, drive-by shooting, but these acts of violence brought with them the police. Now, you might see a drive through the neighborhood in a Ferrari, 
recorded on TikTok, so that people understand the clan is still strong, the clan is still in charge. The Ndrangheta branch wants to be seen as entrepreneurs right now. They're looking for social consensus. That means presenting yourself with a, quote, clean face. So the message on TikTok is, we're good people, like everyone else. See for yourself if what we're saying is true. And this is where the pitfall lies. They present themselves as problem-solving organizations. As the coordinator of Milan's Anti-Mafia Directorate, or DDA, Alessandra Dolci knows how dangerous this whitewashing of the Mafia is. She's been fighting the Andrangheta's networks in the north of Italy for more than 30 years now. The DDA is part of the National Anti-Mafia and Counter-Terrorism Directorate, a key institution based here in Rome. It was established in 1991 as a counterweight to the extraordinary power that the Mafia wielded back then and still does today. As times change and organized crime embraces the digital world, the DDA is changing too, often utilizing some of the same tools like TikTok for its investigations. And clues can be found in the smallest details, if you know where to look. Through TikTok imagery, we try to decode the messages the Andrangheta exchange. We focus on trying to work out the relationships between the subjects. For example, it's now become a common thing to upload pictures of weddings, baptisms, birthday parties, important public events in which members of the Andrangheta clans meet. So, not being invited to an Andrangheta wedding means a member has been cast aside, maybe even received a death threat. This happened in an investigation a few years ago. TikTok is important for us because it shows the new direction the Mafia is taking. To lead good investigations, you must first understand the Mafia's mentality and its strategies. The Mafia's media strategy, led by a new digitally savvy generation, seems to be all about maintaining power through social media, a more subtle way of reaffirming their presence, polishing their brand, growing their footprint. And TikTok is the perfect place for this strategy to spread because ultimately, criminal organizations and social media have a key thing in common, a network. Social media replicates real-world social networks. Mafias are a social network, so they have an innate understanding of how networks are actually built. The virtual world is the real world. There is no difference in this case. TikTok is such a direct medium. It shows what's actually happening. Whatever goes down on the streets, if you're there, you will see it happen. If you're not, you can check it out later on TikTok. It's one and the same thing. We cannot think of it in terms of two separate worlds. Today, the Mafia oscillates between the real and the virtual, bringing them together in a new space, a new sphere. It's the key to the Mafia's ability to adapt. And finally, this week marks 20 years since the passing of Palestinian-American intellectual Edward Said. It's also the 45th anniversary of his most famous work, Orientalism, a book that still resonates socio-politically nearly half a century after its publication. The central idea behind Orientalism was groundbreaking and fiercely debated, that the West, through means such as art and literature, constructed a view of the East 
that was racist and exploitative and helped power colonialism and imperialism. By the time of his death in 2003, Saeed had lived to see his ideas borne out by history, particularly by America's war on terror and Israel's persistent oppression of his fellow Palestinians. We will leave you now with a short animation illustrating some of Saeed's ideas. And we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Edward Said, Palestinian intellectual, literary theorist, historian of the colonial narrative. Said explained how colonialism works, not just through armies, but through literature. Not just through conquest, but through anthropology. Not just through oppression, but justified through narrative. Said saw it in 19th century Western literature, and you can see it across modern culture. Switch on the news, read the newspapers, look at the images. What stories are you being told? How does it feel to be fixed, captured, framed? Think of Orientalism as a lens. Use it when you read the media. Spot the stereotype. Decode the fiction. Unlearn the myth.